morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Earlier this month, the Wall Street Journal had an article by one of my favorite columnists. His name is Jason Gay. And Jason was warning his readers that it's about that time of year. You know, the time of year that I'm talking about where no matter what store you're walking into, they're going to be blaring, all I want for Christmas is you by Mariah Carey. And Jason observes that this song may be one of the last pieces of monoculture, meaning something that everyone in our country knows, seemingly, and that everyone experiences. In his words, quote, it's one of the last genuinely popular pieces of popular art in American life. And he's making the observation, the point, that we live in a world of personalized, individual culture, shaped by algorithms, where what you listen to on Spotify or Apple Music, or what you watch on Amazon Prime or Netflix, or what you see on your newsfeed in social media, All of these are curated by what you have experienced and appreciated in the past. Our experiences inform the algorithms that shape our experiences, that inform the algorithms that shape our experiences, that inform the algorithms, so on and so forth. And so, rather than each of us having similar grooves in our thinking and being, grooves that are formed by similar experiences in a shared culture, our grooves in American culture are becoming increasingly unique. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. But let me draw out a contrast for just a moment. This morning, we have gathered for corporate worship. And in so doing, we have sung songs together, only a couple of which you might actually appreciate or even know. We have read words together in confession and profession that you have not chosen. They've actually been chosen for you, not an algorithm has not chosen them for you based on your experiences or even your preferences. We have prayed corporately, but with words and burdens that we have not personally chosen, led in prayer by Jeff. What we are practicing this morning is something profoundly shaping in a communal experience. And frankly, it's more profoundly shaping than Mariah Carey belting out, I don't want a lot for Christmas. What we are experiencing this morning is what we call liturgy. Now, we are in the middle of a series intended to uncover for us what we mean when we call Sojourn a gospel-centered church. And we have determined so far that we mean that Sojourn is robustly Trinitarian, that we are intentionally expositional in our philosophy of preaching, and that we are relentlessly missional. This week, our attention turns to this 
corporate gathering, to the structure of our worship service. When we say that Sojourn is a gospel-centered church, we mean in part that we are thoughtfully liturgical. Now, this is one of the rare sermons at Sojourn where we will not be walking through a passage verse by verse. Rather, our goal this morning is to prevent, present rather an overview of the practice of worship throughout the scriptures and then make specific application to our context here at Sojourn. So here's a roadmap for you as you listen through this message. We're going to ask three questions. Number one, the what question. What is liturgy? Two, the the why question. Why do we practice a thoughtful and formal liturgy? And then third, and I'm cheating here just a bit. I'm going to get two into one question. The how question. The how of how will we practice it? How do we practice it here? But also the how of how ought we to engage as individuals in the corporate practice of liturgy? So, the what question. Each week we reference liturgy in our Sunday gathering, but let's ask the question, what is liturgy? Now, the word comes from the Greek language and it simply means a public service. That's all it means. Liturgy means a public service. Now, it's grown to also mean the form or the structure of that public service. Now, with that definition in mind, It's helpful to observe that every single church practices a liturgy because every church has some sort of form or structure to their service, even non-liturgical churches. The question really comes down to this. What is going to shape the form? What creates the structure of a worship service? Is it simply a matter of creativity and ingenuity? Is it personality driven? Is it contextually defined? What determines the form of a public service? Well, at Sojourn, we have intentionally chosen a liturgical structure, or at the risk of sounding redundant, we have chosen a more formal form. This more formal form is intentionally shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that brings us to our second question, the why question. Why do we practice a thoughtful and formal gospel-shaped liturgy? Now, there are three components to the answer of this question. And those three components are going to lead us to one observation. So let's work towards these three components to get to an observation. So why liturgy? First, because of biblical patterns. Because of biblical patterns. If we were to survey the first five books of the Bible, we would find this fact. God intentionally shapes the worship of his people. And the structure that he gives, specifically in the Old Testament, included the tabernacle or the temple, depending on the period of time, the priesthood, and the animal sacrifices or the offerings. And those offerings were actually given in an order. First, there was 
the sin offering. The sin offering was a sacrifice to confess sin and to receive the promise of forgiveness of sin, cleansing based upon God's promise. And then second, there was the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was a sacrifice of consecration. The entire sacrificial animal was burnt upon the altar, symbolizing this consecration of the entire individual who was offering that sacrifice. And then third, there was the fellowship offering or the peace offering. And this offering became a meal for the one who was offering it in celebration of having peace with God, of having communion with God. So through these sacrifices and through the sacrificial system, God is laying out a very clear pattern. There's a covenant upon which these sacrifices are based. There's cleansing through confession of sin in the sin offering. There's consecration through the burnt offering. And then there's communion through the fellowship offering. Covenant, cleansing, consecration, communion. This is the basic pattern of Old Testament worship. Now, Rachel read for us Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through verse 9. And we could honestly spend at least a month of Sundays preaching through this incredible passage. But today, what I want us to do is simply note that this same pattern that we've just outlined is found within Isaiah chapter 6. The entire passage is based on covenant. How do we know that? Because it opens with God's covenant king being dead. Uzziah has died. The nation is in mourning. And in that context, Isaiah has a vision of God. Now, there is much to this idea of covenant. Embedded in this thought, or embedded in this rather, is the thought, the, the need really, the opportunity to see God for who he is, to be made aware of his attributes and his activity, and then to interact with him based upon what he has already done. And the result of this, so beautifully shown in Isaiah chapter 6, is confession, cleansing, consecration, and communion. So the core to the liturgy of worship, as well as the initiating of liturgical worship, as shown in the Old Testament, is simply our eyes, our hearts, our minds turn towards God, who He is and what He's done. So as Isaiah gets this vision of God, he can respond in only one way. And how does he respond? It's actually not initially in worship like we would think. No, he's moved to confess. Verse 5, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So he confesses. And based upon that confession, in response to that, how does God respond? God cleanses Isaiah 
through a sacrifice on the heavenly altar. Look at verse six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and had in his hand, and rather in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from off the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. And now what is Isaiah's response to that cleansing of God? Well, Isaiah consecrates himself to God's service. Look at verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. And then immediately there's a resulting communion between God who is high and lifted up and magnificent in his temple and Isaiah who has just consecrated himself to this God. And it looks like God inviting Isaiah into a very difficult ministry as verse 9 begins to communicate. So this is the Old Testament pattern of worship. And it's not just in Isaiah 6, it's throughout the Old Testament. Covenant, followed by confession, cleansing, consecration, and communion. But we are New Testament people. We don't live under the Old Testament sacrificial system. So what about us? What about our worship since Christ has come? Do we still observe this same pattern of worship? Well, Hebrews 10.4 tells us this, that Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him. That's Phillips's translation of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. And what this verse is helping us to understand is that in Christ, the Old Testament and the Old Testament law has been fulfilled. Jesus himself is the fulfillment. He's the appointed goal and the end, not just of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, but he's the end of the entire sacrificial system. He's the goal towards which it was all pointing, including the Old Testament priesthood, and the very existence of the temple itself. After all, Jesus claimed to be the temple. Destroy this temple, he said, and after three days, I will raise it up again. So while the practices of worship have changed, after all, we don't have an altar up here and we're not burning an animal this morning. The practices have changed, but the pattern has not because we are still operating under a covenant with God, initiated by God. We've received uh, cleansing through confession of our sins. We're consecrated to God and what he's, his, his mission in the world. And we have communion with God based upon what Jesus has done. Hebrews 8, 6 tells us that we are in covenant with God because it says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, a better covenant than that old law, the Mosaic law and covenant. And 1 John 1, 9 reminds us of our need to confess our sins in order to receive cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And we could go to many passages in the New Testament to highlight the fact that believers are consecrated to God, including the passage we looked at last week, right? That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, consecrated to God. But Romans 12 uses the sacrificial imagery very clearly to describe this consecration. Romans 12.1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, there's covenant, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And Acts 4.31 reminds us that, as one man says, the renewing, refreshing experience of God's presence and power is still the ideal for gathered worship. We are to be communing with God. So biblical patterns help us to answer the question, why liturgy? Because God has designed how his people are to worship. But there's another answer to the question, why liturgy? And that's the reality of cultural norms, biblical patterns, cultural norms. Now, here's a warning. I'm about to say something that may trigger you, okay? Here it is. It's time for a pop quiz. Anyone break out in hives or sweats? Now, don't panic. I have no doubt that you're going to ace this, but I'm going to ask us collectively to perform, yes, right now in these moments, two tasks that are going to gauge our cultural knowledge. Okay? Some of you are getting really nervous. It's okay. I promise. And I want each of us to perform the task together out loud. Okay? You ready? This is, this is participatory. It's going to be really awkward if I do this by myself, okay? So here we go. Here's our first task. Sing the first few measures of the alphabet song. Ready? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Beautiful, beautiful. You ace the first question. Second task. Sing the first few measures of the happy birthday song. Happy birthday to you. Woo! Happy birthday to you. Good job. Good job. All right. What's the purpose of that? What am I looking to illustrate? You remember these simple cultural liturgies because they were formative on you. They had a formative effect. That's the point. Liturgy is intended, meant to be formative. It's intended to shape us. So that the moment someone starts to sing happy birthday, there's a groove in your mind that your mind can't help but travel. It's formed you. And our culture actually embraces this formative effect of liturgy, just not in the way that we're used to thinking. Think about your favorite college football team. What's the liturgy that the cheer squad and band and the team itself practices right before a home game to get hyped up? Think of your favorite TV show or 
movie series? What is the liturgy that the producers have used as the show is opened? How the main credits are given after a a brief scene at the beginning? Or what's the liturgy they've chosen through the music? It's intended to shape you. Think of your family's Christmas traditions. What liturgy, what form, what structure shaped you as a child and influences how you even think today about how Christmas ought to be celebrated? These cultural, or as James K. Smith describes the happy birthday song and sports team rituals, he describes them as secular liturgies. And then commenting on this idea, the authors of one article elaborate. Our cultural institutions, education, media, corporations, government, they all have a liturgical motive. They want to shape us. They want to inculcate us into a certain vision of the good life. They want to make us into a certain kind of people, people who buy their products or are loyal to their cause or embrace their ideals. And friends, the point here is that sacred liturgy, a liturgy that's been formed by the gospel, is intended just as deliberately to form us. In this way, it is a spiritual discipline. It's been designed to shape us in greater love of God and in imaging Him more completely. But there's a third component to the answer of why. Biblical patterns, cultural norms, and missional ends. Missional ends. The authors I just quoted go on. The liturgy of Christian worship is a subversive countermeasure against the shaping influence of a culture. By using liturgy and worship, we are seeking to reform or reshape people according to the gospel. Rather than being defined by the world, we want them to take on the values of the kingdom of God. So in light of biblical patterns and because of basic cultural norms, the liturgy of our public worship service actually makes it accessible to the non-Christian. Our liturgy is in that sense missional. Now, maybe you consider yourself to be an outsider to the church or to Christianity. This may sound counterintuitive, but think of liturgy like a roadmap or a table of contents. The structure and the repetition of that structure weekly is inviting you into the deepest realities of the Christian faith so that you can travel on ground that may be unfamiliar. A covenant that God has made with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Confession and cleansing from sin that's possible only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Consecration back to God by His Spirit for service. And communion with that triune God from start to finish. 
And this weekly rhythm is also having a formative effect on Christians as it reminds us of the bedrock realities upon which our faith rests. Realities that exist outside of us in this moment, exist outside of who you are and what you feel like right now. Realities that are grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ and realities that ought to elicit a response from us. So biblical patterns, cultural norms, missional ends, these are the three components helping us to answer the question, why do we practice a thoughtful, formal liturgy? And that brings us to one conclusion. Practicing a thoughtful, gospel-shaped liturgy provides a weekly, countercultural opportunity to be awed by the sight of God in the scriptures and then to respond to that same God in worship. And the result of that will be spiritual growth. It cannot help but be spiritual growth. So we've answered the what question. We've answered the why question. And now we come to the how question, which is actually two questions. How do we practice the liturgy? And how, as we practice it, should we engage individually within it? So first, how do we practice the liturgy? Now we're going to actually walk through the specific components of our Sunday morning gathering so that we can thoughtfully consider them together. And on occasion, we may actually rearrange the different elements of the liturgy. But on the whole, we practice a thoughtful gospel-centered liturgy shaped by covenant, confession, consecration, and communion. So let's just think about this idea of covenant. Our entire worship gathering is bookended with covenant. First, we remind ourselves of who the Father is and what the Father has done. He's covenanted with us and he delights to meet with us to the point that he invites us, calls us to worship. And friends, can I speak pastorally for just a couple of moments in this particular area. The first few moments of our worship service isn't simply housekeeping until everyone gets in place. The first few moments of our worship service is crucial. We are allowing the scriptures and God the Spirit through the scriptures to call us into his presence to worship. It's an invitation to come see God. It's an opportunity to be invited by God, to spend time with Him, and to anticipate seeing Jesus through our worship together. And as a church family here, I think there's invitation to lean into the importance of this time. Our entire prelude including a change in musical theme and style and a countdown video, all of that is deliberately communicating something. 
something is about to happen. Something important, something unusual, something we ought to anticipate. And we actually routinely start that process at 10 o'clock to give us five minutes to get into our seats and be ready to worship together. God's people are about to corporately worship God. That's what the start of the worship service is about. And so we begin with an invitation that is intentionally written to level the playing field as we come to worship. No matter how we view ourselves, no matter how we come into this space, whether we're celebrating or weary or mourning or feeling worthless or weak or beaten down by sin, the invitation is the same. We begin by reminding ourselves that worship is not about cleaning ourselves up so we can get into God's presence. No, it's about the fact that God invites us to himself as we are because of Jesus. And each of us need to be reminded of this reality weekly. But friends, if we're coming in five or 10 or 15 minutes after the start of the service, we're actually missing what may be the most important part of the service. A reminder that we are in covenant with God because of Jesus. So that's how we begin. But we also end our time with a reminder of covenant, reminding ourselves of God's covenant to us through the benediction. The benediction is not simply a bow on a package to wrap everything up so we can get out of here and we kind of know, well, it's the benediction, so the service is officially done. No, this is a promise from God for the people of God to, to send you out with an umbrella over your heads, as it were, out into the world to live on mission for God. The leader speaks God's promise of blessing upon you and together we are sent out to proclaim gospel facts for God's glory and to engage in gospel acts for the sake of his kingdom. So beginning and end, framed by covenant. But after this call to worship, we moved into the confession and cleansing portion of our service. And this is perhaps the largest act of defiance against cultural norms that you will practice on a weekly basis. It's a complete reversal of the status quo. It's an embracing of gospel humility as we publicly acknowledge we are not all that. And that's precisely which qualifies us for salvation because we're not all that. We publicly acknowledge, we own our sin before a holy father. And then for me, what is weekly, routinely, the most precious portion of our service together as when I get to lead liturgy is the time that I get to assure God's people of God's pardon in Jesus, in the assurance of pardon. And there's a qualification we give weekly in Christ, for those who are in Christ. And that qualification is important. Not just anyone is forgiven of their sin, 
This is not universalism. But only those who come to the Father in the name of Jesus and based upon His merit alone for forgiveness. But this, for me, is one of the sweetest parts of the service when I get to look individuals in the eye and declare to you that in Christ your sins are forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel. Rest in it and be at peace. But forgiveness of sin in salvation is not merely individualistic. It actually has brought us into a corporate reality, the church. So confessing truths that the people of God have believed for 2,000 years, we profess our faith together. And this is actually tied to the confession and the cleansing from sin because it repudiates the lies that we've been believing all week that's led us into sin, right? And then we are embracing the truth of what God has said in his word, whether it's summarized in an an old catechism or a summary of Colossians 1 or Philippians chapter 2 or John chapter 6. It replaces the lies that we have believed with the cleansing truth of the scriptures. And then we pass the peace that we have with God to others. We engage with one another, greeting one another in the name of Jesus, meeting those who perhaps are new among us, but for the purpose of hospitably welcoming all who've joined us. And church, there is in this opportunity the invitation to share an experience of gospel warmth with someone nearby. And then we pray together. As a church family, we bring our requests corporately before our Father, led in prayer by the leader. And as Jeff referenced, at times you may hear those around you say amen. And if you're new to Christianity or to the church generally, that word simply means yes, so be it. It's an affirmation and agreement with what has been just said. And you have the freedom to express that verbally or internally as we pray together. So covenant, confession, cleansing, but what about consecration? Well, as we commit ourselves to what God has said, we are consecrating ourselves to God and to what He has said. And that happens as we read the Word together and as the Word is preached. We believe that the Scriptures are God's revealed Word to us and for us, and we consecrate ourselves to God's purposes in and through us in the world today. And then we spend time in communion with God, specifically through the Lord's Supper. Now, each aspect of the service is an opportunity to fellowship and commune with Father, Son, and Spirit. But the Lord's Supper is a renewal meal, a covenant renewal meal, a reminder of Jesus' covenant with us through sacrifice and an opportunity to fellowship with the triune God as we eat and drink together. So this is how we practice the liturgy Sunday by Sunday. Covenant, confession and cleansing, consecration and communion. But personally, 
How should we engage with liturgy? Here are a few thoughts as we close together. First, let's engage intentionally. Church family, let's not treat the gathering lightly. This time in God's plan, He intends to spiritually shape us by the gospel through His Word. So let's prioritize it. Let's do what we need to to get here even a bit early so that we can be missional, connecting with those who are new while also ready to be corporately formed together. And I get it those weeks that, man, you're just lucky to get in the door five minutes after or one minute before. I even have weeks like that. Totally get it. But let's make it a rhythm and a practice individually, family-wise, to engage intentionally in the liturgy of our corporate worship together. Second, let's engage thoughtfully. Engage with your mind. We actually reuse particular passages and confessions and professions of faith in order to make grooves in our brains so that our minds frequently travel them. So that in the moment of suffering, in the moment of sorrow, Maybe the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism will be what comes to mind. What is my only hope in life and death? That I belong body and soul to my Lord Jesus. Third, engage affectionately. Bring your whole self to the liturgy. Are you mad? Are you frustrated? Are you sad? Are you discontent? Are you lonely? Are you sluggish? Are you weary? Are you apathetic? Well, the liturgy invites you as you are to come to the God who is, to experience him as he is in his mercy and grace and love and compassion. So bring your affection however they might be fired in the moment, to God, into the presence of God, who promises to meet his people as we worship him. But then engage expectantly. What do you want from God this morning? What do you want him to do? What are you hoping that he will do? Bring your desires to God through the liturgy. And also come ready, expectant that God is going to show up. Because he does. Every single time two or three are gathered in his name. But let's also engage physically. The liturgy intentionally requires our participation as fully integrated human beings human beings with a mind, a body, a soul. So participate in the liturgy physically through singing, through saying, through hands raised in worship or to receive the benediction. But the liturgy invites us as fully functioning human beings to participate. 
And finally, engage patiently. Engage patiently. Maybe you've been in a cave before and you've seen the stalactites hanging from the roof of the cave. Those stalactites were formed over hundreds and sometimes thousands of years as each little drop of water left just a minuscule mineral deposit behind. Friends, our worship service is framed to form us spiritually. And while that change may be very, very slow, just a little deposit that we carry with us into the next week, we can patiently wait for, the, for change, trusting that God will do what he has promised to do through his word in his time. So we can engage patiently. So here at Sojourn, we will continue to practice a thoughtful, gospel-shaped liturgy in order to provide you and me a weekly countercultural opportunity to be awed by the sight of God through the scriptures and then to respond to him through our worship leading to beautiful spiritual growth. So we will continue to be a gospel-centered church by engaging in thoughtful liturgy. Let's pray together. Father, there are many, many things we could pray for in these final moments together. But I simply want to ask that you would use the spiritual discipline of our weekly liturgy over weeks, months, years, even decades to shape and form us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ as we see you for who you are and see what you've done for us in him. Father, would you answer this prayer with a yes and an amen for now, for this week, for this month, for this year, and for the years to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.